Today, we will be speaking with Liz Fraley. She will get us started with an introduction about herself, and then we'll jump to the talk about the great resignation and multi-generational workforces. Enjoy. Hi there, I'm Professor Liz Fraley. I teach practice court at Baylor Law School. I'm an actively practicing trial attorney. I co-direct the LLM and litigation management at Baylor, and I hold the Gerald R. Powell Chair in Advocacy. What that really means for you is that I am a practicing trial lawyer masquerading as an academic. So I teach law students, I run law firms, I work with juries, and I have gotten very interested in how generational differences impact all of those different things. In other words, looking at how when you were born and what really influenced you also affects how you approach, for example, jobs. Great, so I'm gonna get started with the first question. To start off, what is the Great Resignation? You know, Max, the Great Resignation is a little bit of a misnomer because it sounds like people are just quitting jobs and not doing anything else. The Great Resignation really was coined to address patterns in job changing where someone would leave a job much more quickly and look for another job. You know, it's the sense that maybe the grass is always greener. It's a, a recognition that we have access to job hunting literally on our telephones. We can hop on Monster or Indeed or any of those. And it also reflects generational differences and attitudes about whether you keep a job and try to work through problems or just leave and leave the issues unresolved. And what are the impacts that this is having in the economy? And do you think it's a negative, positive thing? And if it's a negative thing, what are the consequences that this will have if the trend continues? So it has been very challenging uh, for the economy. So we are seeing people leaving jobs in record numbers. I mean, truly percentages that we have literally never seen before in any economy. And so one of the negatives is it impacts dramatically the ability to keep employees in jobs. You may have seen at restaurants or coffee shops, you know, we're the ones who showed up. Please don't get angry with us for the people who didn't. And so think about walking into your local coffee shop and instead of the usual six or eight people who are there to manage the morning coffee rush hour, there are two. Patrons get irritable. They want their coffee. They wanted to get in and get out. And so you have a double problem. You have unhappy patrons because they're not being served. And the brunt of that is being felt by the two people who did show up and are steaming your milk right now. The problem's bigger than that, too, because not only do you have people leaving, but for example, in the, a law firm setting, let's say a young associate has spent six to eight months working up your case and then they suddenly leave for all the different reasons people are leaving jobs. Now, there's no one at the firm who knows your case. You've spent a ton of money having it worked up, 
And where do we sort of fill in the time and money that have been paid to have that associate get your case ready? It really sort of leaves everybody holding the bag. Now, if you're the person leaving, you may have better economic opportunities. You may be able to leave for a job with more money, but there's definitely an opportunity cost associated with it. You talk about two examples, first a coffee shop and then the law firm. So the first one is a service shop. Another one um, is not. Is there a certain demographic of jobs that are being more greatly affected by the great resignation? Um, because, you know, before when you're talking about the coffee shop example, I was thinking, oh, probably in these higher paying jobs, people are not doing this as much. But is this the case? No, uh, it's not. Unfortunately, it's been pretty ubiquitous. In fact, in some of the research about who's leaving, partners are actually resigning in um, big numbers as well. And some of that, at least in the legal industry, is as big national firms move into a market, they may come in and raid a section from a, a local firm that's doing well. People are leaving to go start their own. But no, it's just not it's not just your local coffee shop. It's pretty much across the board. We're seeing attitudinal changes that are leave, leading people to leave their jobs. Have there been any proposed solutions to retaining workers? And why have the solutions of the past that have been used to retain workers not being applied now? Or why are they not working now? I hope you have two or three hours. Um, look, it's a really complex situation. And so I will give a somewhat simple answer, but please don't think it's a simple problem that we can just put a Band-Aid on and the bleeding is going to stop. So there are a couple of things that I think led to this. You know, you had everything from um, the subprime mortgage failure and Enron and things that started undermining confidence in corporations and the government. You've seen a decrease in trust in that kind of organization across the board. Then we had the pandemic where everybody stayed home and people lost jobs or people kept jobs and there were very different feelings about the impact that was having. Then you also have generational differences. Um, you know, Gen Z, or I would say sort of the, the more, the, the younger group right now, while they have a strong work ethic, they're pretty conflict averse. Um, they're a very digital native group. And so they break up with people by text. They ghost people. They cancel people. Those are not behaviors that suggest you should dig in and work through conflict. And so what you see generationally, for example, with that group is that if there's a problem, their boss says something they don't like, instead of sitting down and trying to work through it, some of them will just quit and leave. There's a researcher who's really done amazing work on this, Dr. Jean Twingy, who's written a bunch of books on this. And she was actually speaking at a conference saying, you know, if you don't like your job or you get mad at your boss, 
on your lunch hour, you can go look for a job and someone yelled from the back of the ballroom, why wait till lunch? And I think that sort of shows you some of the attitudes about why we're having this issue. People don't have the same loyalty to their job. I think people don't necessarily see it as an evolutionary step to necessarily developing the career you want or the skill sets you want. And so that's part of the problem. Part of the solution is making your workplace one where people want to stay, where you get people invested. So again, let's take our Gen Zers. I've talked about them being, you know, conflict averse and digital natives who are willing to leave, but they're also big believers in a democratic style of leadership. And so one thing that you can do if you're trying to keep your Gen Z workers is actively seek their input about problem solving have meetings where, for example, instead of starting with the oldie moldy employees, ask the younger people. Not only does that help them feel part of the team, part of a democratic style of leadership, but it also helps to avoid what happens in a lot of places. The big powerful person says how it's supposed to be, and then nobody else speaks up because they don't know the consequences of doing that. They don't think their ideas will be as valued. Whereas if you flip that, people feel a little more invested. It's some of the same benefits that come from groups that commit to DEI. It's not DEI just so that we can check a box and say, yes, it, this happened. It actually forces the organization to hear different viewpoints, people who perceive things differently. And it means you miss blind spots. It means you, you don't inadvertently craft a solution that alienates part of your market. I mean, trust me, I have all these kids who range in age from 21 to 33. We view things very differently. And while I may not always agree with them, their perspective helps inform me about my view is not the only view. So that's a short-ish answer to a complicated question. Great. And regarding the COVID pandemic, I believe there were a lot of changes in the way people worked and the way people wanted to work. It's not coming out of the pandemic. It has become a lot more socially acceptable to have a more flexible remote schedule. Is this ideology of remote working uh, and people looking for more flexible schedules, has this led to this issue? I wouldn't say it has led to this issue. I mean, there are benefits to remote work. Now, it's interesting. We're finally starting to see the data come out, looking at the impact of that. And you may hate to hear this, but it's actually better for older established people to work remotely because we get more done. We don't have people knocking our door, asking us questions, interrupting <clears throat> um, that it is necessarily for younger people is at least the initial data that I've seen. But here's what I think the real issue is. And it may be that a hybrid is sort of the sweet spot. When you are not working with a team. And one of my kids actually joined a company that was a tech company two weeks um, before the pandemic. And so literally his first day, everything shut down. So he worked for this company for years and had never set foot in the office, never been in a room with anybody on his team. 
Um, <clears throat> when that is the case, you lose out on mentoring opportunities. There's something about just being in the same hallway. There's something about being able to just drop in with a question instead of having to set up a Zoom call or send an email to whatever. It's sort of the water cooler culture. <clears throat> That's kind of nice. It's also nice just to hear how people higher up in the organization do things. You start to absorb some of that by osmosis. And the other thing I remember from when I was young, I mean, I started with three other young associates. I felt a lot more comfortable going into their offices and say, do you have any idea what this is or how I'm supposed to do it? Because there's no shame in that game, right? We all know we're stupid. We're new. We don't know how to do this yet. And I felt so much more comfortable. And we really shared experiences and expertise and information with each other. And none of us had to go to a more senior person and look like we didn't really know what we were doing. So I think that we will take and harness the benefits of technology. I mean, you and I would probably never have met. We, I don't even know what zip code you're in, Max, but we're getting the benefit of having this conversation because now technology is easy, but <clears throat> we want to be sure that we're not missing out on that true personal connectedness from being in the same room, being able to go grab lunch or coffee, all the benefits that come from that. You've already touched on this a little bit, but in your research, you talk about these four generational groups of workers. Can you talk about what these different groups are, what their beliefs and backgrounds are and how they differ and the impact that the differences that they hold and the different ideologies they believe in, how these have an impact on the workplace? Okay, and let me be clear, this is not my individual research. I, I write on it, but I am not a social scientist. I'm a lawyer. And so I'm taking data accumulated by other people <clears throat> and applying it in situations that happen in education and business and the law. <clears throat> but with that said, there are four groups that are sort of recognized. Um, boomers, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. Every time I give this talk, somebody gets their knickers in a twist about, well, I'm a millennial and I don't behave that way. Again, remember, these are broad categories. The years that are assigned don't mean that, you know, if you're one year later or one year earlier, it doesn't apply to you or it does. So these are broad. But boomers are the baby boomer generation that literally came post-World War II. So 1946 to 1964. Gen X picks up 1965 to 1980. Millennials, 1981 to 1996. And Gen Z, 1997 to 2012. If you were born after 2012, we haven't done a good job of studying you yet because you're at the, the most 11. And we don't really know what you're going to do with your life. So we, we stick with sort of these groups. Boomers were kind of characterized as workaholics. I mean, they were coming uh, into the workforce in an era of unprecedented economic opportunities and expansion. I mean, think about it. We've been in World War II where you were rationing to get food. And now suddenly we're back to work. We're not forcing our factories to turn out tanks and things. And so you were expected to make the, the best of the opportunities, which means long hours, time in the office, remote work, where it certainly wasn't a possibility. 
And that can be really good and very productive. And you can make a lot of money that way. Cons, you don't have a lot of work-life balance if you're at the office all the time. And it also meant that identity was largely tied up with um, your professional life. You know, the what do you do often meant what do you do for work. So Gen X, built on what they got from their parents, they still have that, um, you know, sense of economic opportunity, but they were a work smarter, not harder generation. They were also what our first real latchkey generation. These parents are at work, and so they're coming home after school, letting themselves in the house, doing whatever. Um, they are risk takers. They were willing to take risks to achieve things. Um, and they're committed to seeing a job through. They want meaningful work. They want to feel like they're really contributing, not just put in long hours. So again, that works smarter, not harder. Yeah, I'll put in the work if I'm actually accomplishing something, but don't tell me you just want FaceTime when there's no real reason for me to be there. Cons, this was a generation that started to distrust authority in a way that their parents didn't, and they disliked rigid work rules. So think about what was going on at that point in time. The AIDS epidemic, the Watergate scandal, the fall of the Berlin Wall, but Margaret Thatcher becoming the first British prime minister who was a woman. And so those were very formative events for them. Millennials were our first generation to sort of grow up with technology and they seek a faster pace, mainly because they could get information more instantaneously than any generation before them. Um, they really valued work-life balance, fun, leisure, work that really fits with who they think they are. And this was our first group to really want to focus on a democratic style of leadership. But with cons, work was a means to an end. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to build this great career thing. No, it was more of a paycheck generation. And this was our first generation that didn't intrinsically value doing a good job. They wanted praise. They wanted recognition. If they worked hard, by golly, somebody ought to tell them you did a good job. And I noticed that sort of refer to that as the gold star generation. You know, it's not enough that, you know, you did a good job. Somebody else better. This was also the group that was uh, influenced by the 9-11 attacks, Hurricane Katrina, Google, Princess Diana's death. I mean, this is what's going on with them, including the, the beginning of the Iraq war. And then the final group, Gen Z, digital natives. They've never known a life where they couldn't carry a computer around with them. They're open-minded and vocal because they have social media. They think everybody has a platform where everybody in the world wants to know what you think about stuff. And that if you put it on social media, it makes you an influencer without necessarily any background. At the same time, they are the most fragile and vulnerable of generations. They, they get nicknamed sometimes um, Generation Snowflake because it's marked by really, really high anxiety, really high rates of depression, 
Um, they're less confident. They're willing to work hard, but they don't innately know that they're doing a good job at work. And so you start to see a real difference in these different generations. You talked about some of the negative characteristics of um, Gen Z earlier, uh, talking about the idea how they're really confident with cancel culture and breaking up over text, and that leads to them just quitting sometimes. But I'm guessing these all there are also a lot of benefits. Um, from each of these separate generations. So someone who's looking to sort of combine all their strength, combine all their efforts, what are some ways in which the characteristics of workers from different generations can be leveraged to create stronger teams in the workplace? You know, and that's a good point. Let's be clear, there are negatives per se to each generation, just as there are positives. And the real key is just acknowledging okay, these are traits. You know, one generation doesn't have the market on the the good values. Everybody brings positives. Everybody brings negatives. And so, you know, I think if you're looking at managing a multi-generational workforce, while we've spent time on the differences, it's really important to look at the similarities as well. So for example, Everybody wants to contribute. Like we, we like to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to be heard and valued. We all like to be praised. I mean, you know, I may say it's a gold star generation, but who doesn't like to be told great work? Loved that podcast, Max. That was a really good one. I mean, whatever it is, we all like that. We all like to advance and grow. Nobody really likes to feel like they're just stagnant and they don't have any opportunities. And we also like to build relationships. We are human animals. We want to be in community. And so if you can recognize all of that, then you can start thinking about how can we work together? And so one tip is disperse decision-making authority. Don't just stop top down. I'm the boss. I'm going to tell you how it is. You really can do a lot with collaborative problem solving. For example, if you have a big team, break into small groups with different generational members in each one and have somebody who is accountable to report back for the group. Number one, that makes it easier in a small group to share ideas it eliminates groupthink, where, where everybody's just doing the same thing. You get a little more information and it empowers somebody. They're not just putting out their idea, which people, especially younger generations, can be very uncomfortable because they don't have confidence. Now you're reporting back on the findings of your group. So it's not just you. And when everybody starts to hear the different problem solving opportunities, you tend to get a better solution. Diversity matters. The more you can loop in different backgrounds, different generations, different experiences, the more likely you are to get, again, a better solution and mitigate blind spots. Another thing, if you're managing, is to remember the platinum rule. Do unto others as they would have you do unto them. In my household, we divide into people who love seafood and people who hate it. And so giving me a very expensive whole smoked salmon is actually a terrible gift. I don't like salmon. 
And so while it was expensive, and I'm sure you thought you were being very thoughtful, it means nothing to me. And so if what you really need is money because you're paying off student loans, giving you time off doesn't necessarily work for what would be meaningful to you. And so getting to know the people you work with can help you do a better job of working with them collaboratively. Giving feedback in a respectful way is important. People can get very defensive, waiting until you're in a neutral space, you're not really upset. Being able to give it calmly is a great way for the generations to work together, things like that. There are so many practical tips that can change how you work together. And I think that if people will be a little bit thoughtful, there's a quote I love from a man called Ernest Gaines. We all have much more in common then we have difference. I would say that about people all over the world. They don't know how much in common that they have. And so what I hope would be sort of the takeaway from this is stop isolating each other and looking for differences, but instead figure out, you know, aren't we all just people trying to be happy on this little blue marble that we share? <laughs>